Hey guys, how's it going out there? Thank you so much for jumping on and, and being with me. Um, I'm so excited to share uh, today about the priesthood book that was just released. So excited. That's been eight years in the making. You know, uh, I released Pioneers of His Presence in 2014. So it's been eight years since um, I've released a book. And really for me, I feel like that's that's kind of the story of the ebb and flow of our life. You know, it's like we get these downloads and revelation and, uh, and, and teaching from the Lord, and then he causes us to walk it out. Uh, it almost seems like um, the Lord is not satisfied with me or in, in our life as a family. Um, he's not satisfied with us just knowing the word. He wants us to live the word. I believe that the one of the biggest things the Lord is doing is that he is always trying to make the word flesh in our life. You know, we we know the word, we hear the word. There are seasons of great revelation and the scriptures are exploding to us and we're just getting all of these downloads. And, and then the Lord says, now I want you to make the word flesh. You know, it's not enough for us to know the word. We have to live the word. And it's, it's a lot like... Um, I think it's a lot like the scriptures describe whenever a prophet in the Old Testament scriptures or even the apostle John in the book of Revelation, there's this theme of consuming the word of God, um, eating the word of God. I mean, my goodness, even Jesus himself said, I am the bread of life. You know, you, you have to eat my flesh, drink my blood if you want any part with me. There's something about consuming the word that is so powerful. And and many of the times that you would see prophets in the Old Testament or even John would speak about this, uh, the Apostle John, they would eat the word and they would describe it as eating the scroll. Maybe you've heard that, eating the scroll. It was like eating the word of God. And they would always say that when they ate the word, it was sweet. It was such a sweet taste in their mouth. But when the word left, you know, from the mouth goes down into the belly, the digesting of the word, that, that part where what you eat when your body turns that into nutrients to your body and it becomes a part of you, that's why Jesus said you must eat my flesh and drink my blood because it's not enough for us to, to taste the sweetness of the word. Uh, it, we have to go through the hard and sometimes unpleasant and and even as described in the Bible, uh, this bitter thing sometimes of the process of the word becoming flesh. Jesus is the word of God. He is the word made flesh. That is the gospel. It's a part of the gospel is that, you know, um, we we cannot be... um, we can't stay in the place of just tasting the sweetness of, of the Word of God. It has to become a part of who we are. God is in the business of making the Word you know the Word that you are. It has to be lived. Oftentimes, we say we believe a lot of things, but the truth of the matter is, is that if we don't live these things, we don't really believe it. 
and I don't care what you believe, uh, you only really truly believe how you live. If it affects the way you live, the way you react, the early church uh, called it the habitus. It was the habit, the reflex of what you believed was important. It's not what you say you believe on Sunday morning. It's not what you say you believe when you read the words off the screen and sing the worship songs um, in a worship service. What you believe is how you live and oftentimes what you do and how you react, your habits, your reflexes of how you live, especially when your world gets turned upside down, when things go crazy, when life doesn't work out, then how you believe uh, actually informs how you actually live. And so the Lord is trying to make the word flesh in our life. He's taking the word we know and making it the word we are. It tastes so sweet when we taste the word of God, when we get a word from the Lord, when we read a scripture in our secret place, when God speaks to us through a teaching and we we, we taste the sweetness and the power of that word, but then the digesting of that word, the time when that word actually works its way into our life. The Bible often describes it as being bitter. It says, I ate the scroll, but then it was bitter in my belly. And so there is this process, right, of, you know, the gospel is death and resurrection. Death is just a doorway into the newness of life. Uh, Death is never the end. Resurrection is the final word. New life, new creation, it's always the final word in the gospel in the good news of Jesus Christ. And so I feel even in in this season, it's been a while since we've released um, regular teachings. And um, I think that's really where we've been. We're in a beautiful season, me and my family, but we are in a season where the Lord is crushing and we are in a mode of surrender. Jesus said, look, you know, when it comes to walking with the Lord, you can fall upon the rock or the rock will fall upon you. And there is a choice. You know, the Lord beckons our surrender in moments when things don't make sense. And, and, and you know, oftentimes we feel like we've done the right thing. And then our reward for being fruitful is that we're pruned. And we often shake our fist at heaven or we go, oh my gosh, where did I miss it? Uh, everything, this does not look like I thought it was going to look. And so what am I supposed to do? Surely I've missed the path. I've took a wrong turn somewhere. I've messed up up. This isn't supposed to be happening. We think that, you know, oftentimes we have such an airness view of kingdom living because we have equated, especially in the West, we've equated success as as blessing. And Jesus, really his view of blessing in the Beatitudes in, in the book of Matthew is, is completely different than what we see. He said, look, if you're mourning, you're actually blessed. If you're hungry, you're blessed because you're going to be filled. You're blessed when you're in lack. I mean, what did, what did, uh, you know, Jesus said this in the Beatitudes. And I think sometimes we, we skip over that. We, 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 we say we believe that, but yet again, we don't look at ourselves as blessed when we're wanting, as Jesus described in the Beatitudes. And even Paul, what did he say in 2 Corinthians? He said, I am weak. I, I suffered affliction. 
I prayed the Lord to take this thorn from, from my side, this thing that was troubling me. And the Lord said, I'll not take it from you because in your weakness, my strength is made perfect. My strength is made complete. My strength is mature when you're weak. And so we, we, we have this idea that, you know, if we're blessed, if we're successful, that, that means we're blessed. He said, the Lord's just blessing us. You know, we're so successful, but listen, blessing doesn't always look like that. Blessing often looks like the Lord saying, I want you to surrender to me and it's going to be painful because it's going to look nothing like you thought it was going to look. But inside of that, you're going to find me. You're going to really find truth. You're going to find me inside of this suffering, inside of this, this place where it's the not yet. You're, you're in maybe a season of transition, or maybe you're in a place you never thought you'd be, but you know the Lord is in it. And and it's going to deliver you from the fear of man. It's going to deliver you from what people think about you because you're only going to have the Lord. So, man, I encourage you, if you're in a season much like we found ourselves in, it's a season of of the tension of, of beauty, but also um, deep surrender, carrying the cross, embracing the death, the doorway of death, not physical, but the doorway of death that the Lord might lead you through because he wants to resurrect you in a whole new way. There is only one way to resurrection and that is through death. And so, um, die quietly has been our motto in this season. And that is really where we've been. We, you know, uh, have received all these downloads revelation and we're releasing teaching and it's beautiful. But we're in a place where the Lord is now, you know, crushing and bringing out that Jesus inside so it can come out, right? The olive has to be crushed for the olive oil to come out. The grape has to be crushed for the wine to come out. And so this is the beauty of kingdom life. And so... I'm excited because we've just released the priesthood and it's been eight years of revelation, but it's not just been philosophy, which I deem as things that we see in the scriptures, maybe a theological thing we know to be true, but it's not lived experience. And what I love about how the Lord has allowed us to do Pioneers of His Presence, our first book, was that, you know, it was years and years and years of revelation, but it was lived out experience. And the living out of that revelation is never um, as sexy, I will say, as uh, getting the revelation. Again, it's sweet when we first get the word. It's hard and unromantic when it's lived out. And the priesthood has really been that for, for me too. And a book eight years in the making that really is not just philosophy. It's not just a theological idea. These are things I have seen and lived out. And, and that's why I believe it carries something that is um, powerful because it's not just teaching that gives us new ideas. It's not just teaching that that gives us new concepts or revelation. It truly, I believe, when lived experience is taught, uh, I believe it has the ability to impart to the hearer um, something more powerful. It imparts something deeper. You know, I love the saying, you can teach what you know, but you can impart who you are. There is nothing like hearing from someone who is teaching something they've lived through. We have so much teaching that's fluff because it's good ideas, but it's never been lived out. 
We need teaching in these days that's impartation, actual living impartation that changes us and changes the way we live. And the only way we get that is from people who embody the word that they preach. Jesus' words were powerful and carried authority because he was the word that he spoke. He said, the words I speak to you are spirit and life. Jesus is the word of God made flesh. So when he spoke the word of God, it carried authority because he was the living embodiment of the thing he taught. We must be living epistles. We can't just be people who have good teachings, good ideas. We can't just read from the word and and, and tell people, hey, this is a a good collegiate class on this, that, the other. Knowledge is fine. Uh, You know, having good theology is great, but we must live out of what we know. It's more important that we do the word we know than to know the word we hear. This is how we've endeavored to live our lives, me, my wife, our family. And so in saying that, I've, I've been asking these questions. We released the priesthood uh, last week, and it's been an incredible thing to see how it's touching the lives of so many people. And of, of course, you know, for me, just a little history on the book, I said it was eight years in the making. And um, it's there's tons of personal testimonies of cities that God has sent us to that have been transformed through the priestly um lifestyle, building the altar, bringing prayer and worship to the dark places, having the presence of God be representation in places where he um, was thought to not be. This is the story of of our life, and, and I think the priesthood is that. You know, it goes all the way back to... Um, you know, again, 2014, it really is part two, I believe, of Pioneers of His Presence. And to to be fair with you, it was a year ago. This is just super transparent, but a year ago, I was nearing the end of the book. I would say probably 85% finished. And what's so important for you to understand is like, I'm not sitting down writing this book in one fell swoop. I am writing this book as I'm walking with God. And more importantly, I'm not sitting down to write uh, and just writing. You know, these these times of writing are soaked in prayer. They're soaked in uh, spending time with the Lord. So, you know, I'm spending uh, an hour and a half with the Lord and just soaking in His presence, meditating on His Word, and then jumping into writing. It feels like such a... Um, it's like I'm I'm priming my soul and my heart before the presence of the Lord and then sitting down and releasing it in this in this way. It's it's not just as simple as, oh, I'm gonna sit down and write. It's it's a very deep um, thing where spirit, my mind, my emotions, you know, our soul, our heart is is engaged into this moment of writing. And so with that being said, last year around my birthday in February, um, 2021, I had an experience where I lost the entire, uh, I would say not the entire book. I lost about 40% of my most recent writing. And so I had, I had lost really half the book, close to half of the book and hours of prayer. And on top of hours of writing, um, you know, this is to get my thoughts out and, and to think that it was, it had just disappeared was, it, it gutted me. I, I couldn't believe. So of course I did what, you know, anyone would do. I tried to recover it. I looked on hard drives. I'd got online. I went to, you know, specialists tried to recover it somehow. 
it hadn't been saved. It had been deleted. Uh, the, the 40% of the newest part of writing the book last year. And it was once I found out that it was definitely gone and all of the things I had written were just lost, um, forever lost. I, 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 it took me a while to process that. And honestly, it was discouraging. I felt like I'd been gut punched. I was like, I, I gave up on the book, honestly, for months and months at a time. I, I gave up on it. I didn't visit it. It was so discouraging because I felt like I was so close. You know, it'd be like running a, a marathon and you're, you know, you see the finish line and then they say, hey, you know, we know you've ran all this way, but we, we're going to set you back actually halfway back uh, of the entire marathon. You've got to continue. You've got to run it all over again, uh, halfway all over again. And I thought oh, I just I didn't have the, the strength and resolve. But what happened in that time was so the Lord used it because my wife and I had this one encounter where my wife began to ask me questions about certain things with the Lord and the book. And what ended up happening was the Lord really helped reframe my book in a way that I feel was healthier because, um, not to go into it or belabor this point, but I really feel the Lord used it. And, and I jumped back in and had a whole fresh, um, I feel like even more refined and mature take on what I was trying to say. And so the priesthood is here. The priesthood is really a book that, um, you know, it's, it's, it is talking about what is it, what does it mean to be a priest? You know, living in New Orleans, you know, I can tell you being a very Catholic based city, you say the word priest and it carries a whole different slew of, um, connotation to people. But for many of us, we need to understand what the Bible says more than what the culture says. A priest is not just someone who, you know, is, is a certain clerical duty in the Catholic church. Um, according to the Bible, and the New Testament, all believers are priests. And so oftentimes in evangelical culture or, you know, in, in the charismatic persuasion or any any evangelical Western persuasion of what a priest is, they would say we're all priests. Martin Luther obviously fought for, for that idea that the, the believer is a priest. Every believer is a priest, as First Peter describes. But I go in deeper because I feel like reclaiming what the priesthood really means will set us up to know our identity in a fuller measure. And when we know who we are, we can operate in that power in a whole new level. I mean, think about it. Listen, you know, Spider-Man can do the same things without the suit, but there's something about the suit that brings identity. It's the same thing with Superman. You know, Superman is Clark Kent. Clark Kent is Superman. They do the same things, but when he puts on the suit, when the suit is unveiled, who he really is, it's like it empowers him to, to be able to operate in the fullness of his power. And I think that it's so true for us as believers that we can call ourselves priests, you know, but if we don't understand what that means, what the Bible says, the, the rich history, if we don't understand the power we hold in our worship, our prayer as representatives uh, before God and, and 
you know, representing, representing even God to man. This is who we are. The Bible says we're a nation of priests. If there was any national identity, the Bible gives us as, as a nation of people, as the kingdom of God, as a completely different race, a new creation of people, it describes us as a nation of king priests. We are royal priests. And so we obviously the priesthood, this book, I'm so excited because it dives into that and it is not boring. It is not boring. And I think that's the other thing is so many people, they look at the worship movement, worship in the church today, and they hear a priest and they think, oh gosh, you're going to go into the, you know, uh, you know, what does the priest garment look like and so forth and so on. This is not what this book is. This book is practical. This book is real life. This book is revelatory. It's not rehab. It's not a collegiate, you know, handbook. This is not like boring facts put together. This is, I feel, a living prophetic word for right now. Some of my favorite chapters, man, the dream. I want to just provoke you guys to, to go through the book real quick. And then I want to just end by, by telling you why I believe this book is so necessary, even for right now. Um, and, and even in the midst of what we're seeing right now unfold in the world with this war in Ukraine. But one of my, I'm going to go through a few of my favorite chapters. You know, I start off the book with the dream, which is about a dream that I had that really, I think, sets the stage for the entire book. It was a supernatural encounter I had. And um, I, I try to treat it with as much holiness and reverence as I feel for the dream. You know, I, I didn't even share about this dream. It was so precious to me for years and years. I didn't share about it. It was a very private thing, but uh, the Lord did release me to begin sharing on that. And so this dream is powerful because it sets the stage for the priesthood. It'll be a dream that for me is a lifelong goal, bullseye. It is a it is a, a mark that the Lord has set, I believe, for all of us. And, and it's a powerful dream. I saw the Lord Jesus and uh, you, you will never believe what uh, the Lord looked like in my dream. And there's a reason uh, I give for why he looked like what he did in the dream. And so I, I'm so excited for that. Even that that chapter alone, I'm telling you, will inspire you to, to just love Jesus more, to just see the Lord in all of his beauty. I, I think that chapter alone, I could read that chapter once a day probably and just be encouraged to love Jesus and gaze upon the beauty of Jesus um, for the, the rest of, of my days just from that. So I love that chapter. I go into the first priest, the first tabernacle, we go all the way back to Adam in the garden and how the garden is 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 like the temple and the temple is was modeled even after the garden how the priest was the caretaker of the garden Adam being the first priest technically and how through fellowship with God Adam actually operated in the priesthood in the garden you know that right there to me uh, we, we, where we start there serves as the basis for where we go. We build upon that. We go into um, the the Old Testament priesthood and how it were it was to be a priesthood to bless the earth as representatives to the earth, to all of mankind, to all of creation. The priests 
um, in Israel were to be a, a nation of priests, really, to represent God uh, to man and to stand before God as man's representative as well. And so that's powerful. I go into priests carrying God's government and how the government of God that we see, uh, even as the ecclesia, which is the ruling body uh, in the earth, that's us, the church, and we go through the history of that. One of the the chapters that's going to get you guys, I know, uh, that's going to be maybe a little controversial until you read it. It's it is clickbait. I get it. You know, uh, we're in 2022. We have to have a little bit of clickbait, right? I had to have a few chapters that caused you to want to read, but. You know, the truth is, is that this is something that's very misunderstood, and uh, I'm not picking on anybody. This uh, this chapter was not meant to, you know, stir up anybody's anger, but the chapter, You Are Not a Levite, is so vital and so important, and uh, I explain why. You know, we, we call people Levites in the church who are musicians, creatives, worship leaders, mus- you know, all of that, that stuff, and... And I get people's heart behind it. It's not like people are evil when they're saying that, and they're not trying to to to, to be um, theologically incorrect or anything. But it's bigger than that for me. Again, I feel like we must rightly identify who we're called to be as worshipers in the body of Christ. And if we give a, an inferior identification, we'll walk in an inferior model and paradigm. And and it, God wants to take us deeper. And it, it does. It leads right into the chapter uh, called Melchizedek. We belong to the Melchizedek priesthood. It might sound lofty. It might sound unimportant. It might sound like, oh man, you've got too much time on your hands. But there is a purpose to this. And, and the Bible calls it the meat of the word. And it shows when we talk about Melchizedek, you know, I think oftentimes people start to go, oh gosh, they roll their eyes. Here we go. And you're going to pull some deep, mysterious theological teaching out of Hebrews, but it's not. We demystify it. We talk about it. And I'm telling you, it will encourage you. It will fire you up. It will give language to your heart. We go into chapters like worship is not for sale. So goes the priesthood, so goes the church. The worship movement will lead uh, the missions movement. The worship movement will lead our church culture. It already is. It has, and it has all the way back to Moses, that the worship culture of the people of God, I will even say the musical culture of the people of God dictates the movement and the efficacy and the power of the church's impact. And that to me is huge. Priests rebuild cities. I go into how worship changes cities. One of my absolute favorite chapters, and I believe is is it might be one of the, mo- the top three chapters in the whole book is worship and the gospel. People don't realize how the gospel being preached, evangelism and worship go hand in hand. They're absolutely intrinsically linked and how we've gotten off when worship becomes self-focused, when worship becomes about what it does for us rather than what it serves to do for the Lord's heart and even beyond that. Um, we miss it. We miss the full power of what God's entrusted us with as the priesthood. Um, 
I talk about building altars in our cities, leaving a voice. We even get deep. Uh, there is some deep stuff in here where we talk about the heavenly tabernacle, incarnational worship, Christ as the priestly cornerstone. Um, we talk about the the priestly covenant. You know, you always hear the no, you know, the covenant of Noah and the covenant of Abraham and the covenant with Moses and God has covenants throughout uh, the scriptures that He made, but we do not often hear of the priestly covenant God made with Phineas and. And, and accessing that covenant even today through jealousy. As a matter of fact, the, the covenant that Phineas received from the Lord is the covenant of the Melchizedek priesthood. I go into that. It's so powerful. Um, man, we go into so much. There, there's so much in here. There's even, uh, I get really um, I get really controversial. I'm sure people will uh, love it on um, some of the final chapters. Um, but a priesthood of sons and daughters, stop mourning Saul, go anoint David. That's another incredible chapter. And I end with the chapter forsaking urgency and embracing the long path. Um, I touch on some end times eschatological views there. Um, nothing in concrete. But uh, there is some things to possibly challenge you, if nothing else, to challenge your view of end time um, theology and and how you see the world. Uh, And and I think it's important. I think it's very important for us to um, at least open ourselves up to the possibility that we might not have it all figured out like we thought we did. So this priesthood book is dripping with lived experience fresh revelation, and more importantly, most importantly, it, it is biblical. It's biblical in, in language. It's biblical in its foundation. It is scriptural. It is not just unfounded charismatic fluff. Um, it's not just postmodern feel-good theology. I believe this is scriptural, and the foundation of it all goes back to scripture, and I think you'll see that common thread throughout the entire book. Listen, you know, with everything going on in Ukraine and the war and with the simultaneous release of the priesthood book, I want to just give you guys this to, to kind of close today. I am excited about the book. Go get it. But when the war broke out in Ukraine, it, it became so real to me. People are starting to talk about World War Three and uh, again, the end times talk starts coming. And, you know, th- when you are on the verge of world um, issues and catastrophe and, and crazy things are happening. I mean, you know, Russia has invaded a sovereign nation, a free people, uh, and the implications of what could happen are tremendous. I mean, there, there's tremendous implication for, for the world with what's happening. And I said, you know, I began to ponder and and even pray and ask the Lord, God, does this book, the priesthood, does it, does it matter if, if the world is going crazy? If, if war breaks out, um, does this book still hold true? And I had to ponder it because sometimes I think we have in America, especially and in the West, we live our lives and and we live in in these a lot of times these bubbles. And it makes me really wonder, you know, if our theology revelation, if our Christian lifestyle that we teach in church and we teach, uh, you know, in the in, in in Sunday mornings, if it only works in the West. If it only works when there's times of peace, if it only works for the rich and not the poor, 
then we have to put it on trial. We have to put it under judgment and say, is this real? Is this the full truth? Is this the gospel? Is this real? If it's only real for a certain subculture of the world, um, I, and, and it can't be imp- implicated or can't be useful to all peoples, then I think its efficacy has to be questioned. The reason the gospel is the gospel is because it works in all cultures. It works for the rich, for the poor. It works for all races. It works for all all seasons, and it works and, and has worked throughout human history. And so we've seen thousands of years of the gospel it's relevant at all times. That is why it is the true gospel and why it's the kingdom of God, if it can withstand those things. And so amidst the current crisis and war, I've said, God, does a book like the priesthood actually have any value? Does it even have relevance to real world issues and problems? And I believe I've come to the conclusion that not only is the priesthood relevant, but it's necessary. It's absolutely necessary for these times. And I just want to jump in and say, listen, you know, it's fun to talk about, again, the sweetness of the word and revelation, but if we're not going to actually do it, then we don't actually believe it. And that's what I hope the priesthood imparts is that our worship culture is not for us. It is not just for our feel-good goosebumps on Sunday morning or, or, or whatever. Listen, our worship culture is to host the presence of God. And the presence of God is not just for our feel-good moments. The presence of God in our midst is, as Moses said in Exodus, it's the very thing that sets us apart from every other people on the face of the earth. It's not our Christian bumper sticker, our t-shirt. It's none of that. It's not what we put on our social media handles. It's not what we put in our bio. It's this. Do we carry the presence of God on our lives? This is the distinguishing factor of us, the people of God, the church, and the rest of the world. This is so important. And so, When we talk about these things, we need to understand that worship is important because we host the presence of God with our priestly lifestyle. Just saying we're priests doesn't make us priests. Doing priestly ministry is what makes us priests. That means our emphasis, our first ministry is unto the Lord to serve his heart in worship, in prayer, in fellowship. And so worship as the priestly ministry, um, as if you'll read um, you'll you'll find this out in in, in the book and and I do I, I clarify people often talk about worship is not just music well let me tell you something read the book and you'll 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 see this I I support that idea I also support this idea that um, worship's highest finds its highest form in music in song and this is not my idea these are ideas found in scripture. And it's even found in the very throne room of heaven right now. There's day and night singing with music, with song, with instrument, and they're singing new songs. And, you know, in the face of war, I want to say now that is the perfect time to sing. I'm praying that the Ukrainian church right now is singing songs of worship, releasing incense, releasing prayer, um, and worshiping over their nation. You say, well, dude, that, that, that sounds good, but this is real life. There's real weapons. There's real casualty. Listen, 
the Bible is, maybe we can make the Bible more real then, because the truth of the matter is, is that when Israel faced war, God's remedy over and over again was worship me worship me and I will fight your battles. You worship me, you make me your focus, and I will fight for you. I mean, we see this all throughout scripture. Firstly, we see it in the story that many of you um, know well, I'm sure, is Second Chronicles chapter 20. And if you read in verse 21, Jehoshaphat is literally under um, the pressure of foreign enemies coming to completely destroy their nation. They are outnumbered. They're outmanned. They do not have a chance. They do not have a chance to win the war. And Jehoshaphat literally hears the word of the Lord and the Lord says, you're, you're going to be, you know, you will be overtaken by these enemy nations, your people destroyed, your, your, your women made slaves, your children slaughtered, your nation is coming to an end as you know it. What do, what do you do? The Lord says, have a worship meeting, have a worship gathering, praise me, worship me. It says in second Chronicles 20 verse 21, when he, Jehoshaphat, had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army and say, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. Imagine the Lord saying, hey, America, you're going to be destroyed tomorrow. There's nuclear weapons pointed at every major city. Uh, life as you know it will never be the same. Uh, you can kiss America goodbye. 24 hours, you're going to be destroyed. And the leader of the free world says, God has spoken, have a worship meeting. Send out worship before you send out even troops to war. Send out worship and prayer. And it says in verse 22, when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, and so they were routed. Listen, this is incredible. They all end up destroying each other, the enemies of Israel, and Israel gets the treasure and the spoils of war from the Lord fighting the battle for them. What did they do? They sang. And Isaiah 42, it, it, it actually completely supports this. Isaiah 42 prophesies this. He says, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing his praise from the end of the earth. You who are down by the sea, you who are in the sea, you are on the islands, you who are on the coastlands, you in the wilderness, you in the cities, all of you sing to the Lord a new song. Sing, release music as worship. Remember this, you know, people say, hey, everything's worship to me, brother. Well, that's great. But let me tell you, and I say this in the priesthood, your worship life will inform your walk with God and your walk with God will inform how you worship. But the truth of the matter is, is that, you, you know, God did not say, hey, go worship me with your life. No, he said, have a solemn assembly of worship right now. Stop everything and worship. And it says in Isaiah 42, I'll continue, verse 10 through 13. If you're wondering, it says, let the inhabitants sing aloud. Let all people sing and shout for joy to the Lord from the tops of mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise. Now watch what it says. When they do that, watch, the Lord will go out like a warrior. He will stir his zeal like a man of war and raise a war cry and he will prevail against his enemies. 
when King David had night and day worship for 33 years straight, you can look at Bible maps at the time of Israel before King David's reign and Solomon's reign and find that the enemy nations had so much more territory encroaching on the borders of Israel. Once David established 24-7 worship, actually, which was a, a, a foreshadowing of new covenant praise and worship to host the presence of God. When David had that 24-7 worship happening around the Ark of the Covenant in the David's tabernacle, listen, you can look at maps, Bible maps, and see that during that time of priestly ministry, when it was emphasized in the nation of Israel through King David in his tent, you will see that the enemy nations are pushed utterly back, completely back. Israel's territory expands. They experience a time of peace. They experience a complete economic revival to where Israel became an influential superpower in the region, and it all traced back to worship. This is not fluff. This is Bible. This is history. This is what happens when the priesthood arises. Listen, I'm telling you, you know, even in times of war and catastrophe, this is when we need the priesthood. Isaiah 61 says the priests will be the one to rebuild cities, restore the desolation of generations, to rebuild the ancient ruins. This is who does it. Guys, listen, who rebuilt the place of the presence of God? It was Ezra, right? It was Nehemiah. They were priests and they built back a place for the presence of God. The entire thing I want you to hear from this is that where God has placed you, he's called you to build a place for the presence of God in your city. Right now in New Orleans, I'm telling you, if you're not aware, our city is in here in New Orleans experiencing a ton of, of crime. There's been an uptick in crime like crazy. There's murders. Even in, in the church we're serving at here in New Orleans, um, on our street, we're right on Canal Street, you know, and every week, um, blocks away from our church, people are being murdered, killed, harmed. It, it just seems like the enemy is raging. And, you know, what do we do? Do we, do we, I see on message boards, on social media, you know, Facebook and Instagram. Let me tell you what I see. People are talking about it. And I even see Christians and nothing. Oh, this man, this, this perturbs me deeply. When I see Christians literally speaking curses, speaking death, even speaking um, um, faithless accusations over cities. They say, we don't like the government. It's all to blame the government of the city or that city's gone to pot. That city's gone to crap. That city's no good anymore. We don't even go to that city. I won't even be going there. Let them, just let them rot. Let them die. Let them, you know, they're, they're awful. A lot of people, even Christians have given up on the dark and hard places. And shouldn't it stand to reason that the enemy is contesting the places of greatest destiny? Does the enemy go after places that don't have a great calling. No, the enemy camps out and puts strongholds and fights for the places that are powerful, that, that are influential, that have um, a purpose, even in war. I mean, think about it right now. Where is Russia attacking? Kiev. They're going after the capital city. They're going after the second largest city. They're going after hot spots. They're going after places that have have uh, power. This is how war works. The enemy wages war. Our enemy, Satan, wages war. 
uh, and the heavenly powers of darkness. They're waging war against places that are strategic places of influence that I believe the Lord wants to use. How will the Lord have representation if not for his priesthood hosting and building a place for his presence in these places? I don't care if you're in your own home and and experiencing uh, darkness or trial, build a place for the Lord. Build a place for the Lord there. Stop what you're doing and worship him. Worship him and, 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 and do not relent. In your city, in your town, if you're in a place the Lord has put you, in your church, I don't care where you are, if the Lord has placed you there, it's not time to run. We need the same spirit of the Ukrainian people who said, no, we're going to stand against overwhelming opposition. Outnumbered though we may be, we're going to stand in this place and fight. I think the kingdom of God should should um, take a note from the Ukrainian people that we see and say, listen, we will not relent. Even though the enemy might be raging in our city, we will fight. And let me tell you something. You know, I talked about how music went before. Worship music in the time of Jehoshaphat actually went out before the army and it caused them to win the war. I mean, this has been practiced throughout history. I don't know if you know, but even in the civil war, the the, the North and the South, the civil, the American civil war, you know, they sent out music. Music became a military operation. It it, it gave signals. It gave signs. It it put fear into the uh, the opposing side's heart. When they heard that music, music carries power. It carries with it emotion. It carries power. It opens the doors of the heart. You can go back as far as um, the Scots. It, Scotland would and the Scottish people would actually play bagpipes. And these bagpipes would signal different troops for different things. And it became the sound of war. I don't know if you know this, but England actually um, declared that Scottish bagpipes were a weapon of war. They declared it a weapon of war and they outlawed Scottish bagpipes because of the power, this ambiguous power that was released in times of battle when the Scottish people would play their bagpipes. So England actually outlawed bagpipes. That's why if you remember in the famous movie Braveheart, when, um, you know, William Wallace is a child and he's watching his father's funeral and uh, Uncle Argyle looks over at a young William Wallace and he says, they're playing outlawed tunes on outlawed pipes. It was against the law to play music because of the power that it had to rally and to and to give courage and faith to these warriors to fight. Guys, it's the same with us. They should outlaw. Uh, anybody who doesn't want the kingdom of God to take ground, to take space, should outlaw worship. Worship is dangerous. Worship is a key. It is a weapon of war. Now, it's not just for the purpose of us securing some sort of victory. It ultimately rests in that we love Jesus, and when we stop and worship him, he fights our battles. Never could this be more true in times when we see catastrophe or war or real world issues happening. The priesthood is still relevant. It is even more so relevant, I believe. So I encourage you guys, jump into this. I hope it blesses you. It's the story of... Uh, of um, 
even a lot of it, our life, the, our lived experience from San Francisco to, to, you know, Nashville to New Orleans and all of these cities and God's intent for worship in the coming day. I think it's a vision for worship beyond our current modern paradigm of what we've thought worship was and what it is, especially where much of the worship culture and movement in America and in the West is, is polluted with um, selfishness and a desire for fame and money and glory and success. And, you know, we, we, we look at what worship can do for us and instead of the true purpose of what it was meant to do uh, as a priestly people. I think it's a return to the purity of what God has for the coming days of the church and what what the church will look like and what the nations of the earth will look like who have priestly representation there. So I love you guys. I, I, I pray blessing over you. Um, and uh, I hope to get some more teaching to you soon. I have a few teachings in the bag that I've done recently uh, at some churches that I, I'm going to try to upload soon, and I think they'll be very encouraging. But hey, if you can, um, grab the book, grab the priesthood. It's available on Amazon. You can get it on Kindle, so you can get it digitally, read it on your phone, your iPad, so forth, so on. But I would encourage you to get the, the real copy because the book is beautiful. There's nothing like a real book, nothing like underlining a real book. And then going back to it and, and being able to, to, to have that relationship with a physical copy. And you can even get hardcover, which um, might take um, a, a week or two longer to get than the paperback. I know the paperback's coming in a few days from Amazon, but you know you can get the hardcover as well, which I highly encourage. They're just beautiful. And um, the book is, is I believe... Um, a word for us now, and I believe it'll be a roadmap for future generations as well. And there's such language in it. I'm so proud of it. So please check that out. And hey, guys, listen, do me a favor. If you already have the book, stop what you're doing and go leave a review on Amazon because when you do, it actually shows the book to more people who might be interested in that sort of content. So it just helps more people find out about it. So if it's touched you, if it's blessed you, if it's encouraged you, leaving a review on Amazon for the priesthood uh, is going to be supremely beneficial for this to be like seed that's sown throughout the whole world for many people to hear. So uh, I would so uh, be appreciative of you for doing that. Um, listen, love you guys. I bless you and can't wait to be back with you soon. 